Welcome to the UX of Diversity podcast, featuring Shayna Alquist and Stephen Ruiz. The podcast is a blend of narrative and interviews, all centering around issues surrounding diversity and inclusion. We will cover issues surrounding gender, race, LGBT, and other forms of diversity, including age. Although we'll emphasize diversity in the technology space, we'll also be drawing from fields including HR, academia, consulting services, and more. On this episode of the UX of Diversity, we are interviewing Shana Alkvist. That's right, Stephen. So although Stephen and I will typically be interviewing somebody else about their experiences in diversity in tech, we thought it'd be a great opportunity to explore a little bit about my background here. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the UX of Diversity podcast. This is Stephen Ruiz, and I am here with Shana Alkvist. Hi, Stephen. Nice to see you. Now, that is a correct pronunciation of your name, That is correct. So, a little bit of a backstory here. So, Shana and I are the co-organizers of the Silicon Beach Diversity Meetup, and she has been involved with the group for about a month and a half, almost two months now, and as a result of our burgeoning relationship through the Silicon Beach Diversity Meetup, we have found that we have lots of common interest around um, diversity and diversity with a capital D. And I think I've mentioned this before where I talk about um, diversity not only being um, women or people of color or LGBT, but the, the whole spectrum of what it means to be diverse. And we've had multiple conversations about this and digging into our common interest and just finding out more about Shayna, I realized she is an amazing person to bring on as a interviewee for our podcast. So we are going to be doing this together, but the spotlight is on you, Shayna. That's what's happening. It's it's, it's the Shayna Show featuring Shayna. <laughs> well, thank so, you, Stephen. So tell me and our audience a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I I am Dr. Shana Alkvist, so I have a PhD in quantitative social psychology, and specifically I studied why there are so few women in STEM fields. Excellent. Well, I feel very inadequate now, so thank you for sharing your credentials. Um, That's amazing. So can you talk maybe a little bit about your academic background and and specifically about the focus of women in STEM that you have, uh, that was your focus of study? Yeah, so um, I'm going to back up a little bit and tell you the broad reason that I got interested in this field. So although I'm a woman, I never really found the whole gender discrimination thing to be particularly motivating. You know, it's kind of a bummer. But what I did find interesting was this sort of this idea of sort of like Freaky Friday. So if, you know, you switched bodies with someone else, how would things be different for you? So I, I can think back to fifth grade when I had a, a teacher who didn't like me, you know, and I thought like, well, if my friend Erin turned in this essay, I bet she would have given it an A, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and so as I moved into adulthood, um, I think that concept stuck with me. And that's actually part of the reason that I ended up studying what we call social identity. So this idea of being a, a woman or being a man or being black or being white and how that affects not only how others treat us, but how we um, interpret events in the world. That's excellent. And and I think when you're focusing on something so intently for so long, that, that has to be a consideration when you look at, at, at the STEM field. You know, we've talked a little bit about this, but could you talk a little bit about perceived identity compatibility? And uh, and what do we know about its role in, uh, in women's STEM success? Yeah, absolutely. So we all have 
different identities, right? So I'm not just a woman, but I'm also like a UX professional. Um, I'm also someone who lives in a major metropolitan area. I'm also an American. And depending on the context I'm in, those different identities play a role in um, my experience. And we don't hold just one identity, right? We hold multiple identities at the same time. Now, some of our identities, they don't really talk to each other. They're not necessarily in conflict. Maybe they're compatible. But in some cases, you can imagine having two identities at the same time that might actually be conflicting. So for instance, if you think about stereotypes about lawyers, the stereotype is that they're very assertive, very aggressive, kind of loud, brash, um, confrontational. Well, what does it mean then if you think of yourself as an introvert? and you become a lawyer. So now you're an introverted lawyer and you've got these two identities and like, how do you negotiate them? Do you feel like they go together? Do you feel like they're in conflict? And we find that this so-called perceived identity compatibility is highly relevant to predict women's success in the STEM fields. So that's the science, technology, engineering, and math fields. So stereotypes about women are that women are communal, they love being around people, maybe they're a little bit emotional. And in contrast, stereotypes about scientists or mathematicians is that they are loners, they're uncool, they're um, not very social, and they're highly logical rather than being emotional. So what does it mean then to be a woman who is an engineer? Like, how do you think about those two identities and reconcile them? Mm. And what we found in the research is that So we call this perceived identity compatibility. And you can perceive that being a woman and being an engineer, there is compatibility. They go together just fine. Or you could perceive that they don't go together that well, that you're a woman maybe by day, but when you go into your engineering class, you feel uncomfortable wearing lipstick and a skirt. Yeah, so it's almost like a superhero complex in some ways. And and I've thought about this in terms of like... I think general roles that people play, but I've never, I've never really identified something that could be looked at as, as sort of a conflict in, in different ways of self-perception. So that's a really interesting thing to study. Well, and I think something you mentioned there is important. A lot of the stuff in the diversity space isn't specific to diversity. Mm-hmm. These are these are common um, social or cognitive trends that happen to also occur here. So, like you're saying, these things, these kinds of conflict can happen in other scenarios, but they also have for women in STEM, for instance. So if we look at perceived identity compatibility and we say tie this back to, you know, hiring and retention at organizations, how, how do you how do you put those together and how do you use the idea of perceived identity compatibility and apply it to hiring and retention? Oh yeah, there's there's so much you can do. So first of all, it's important to note that you can manipulate and that's the nice social psychology word for <laughs> influence. <laughs> influence. influence. You can right. <laughs> you can influence um, how much people perceive these identities to be compatible by manipulating cues in the environment. Um, so one study they manipulated a computer science classroom, and they had either really stereotypical computer sciencey things in there like. Um, Star Wars posters and Rubik's cubes, or in um, the control condition, they had like water bottles and uh, nature posters. And they found that when women were in the um, stereotyped room with sort of traditional cues of what it means to be a computer scientist, they were less interested in becoming a computer science major. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So when you're talking about even at a at an early age, that say some uh, somebody in junior high or a girl in in junior high or high school finds an interest in that, that they're kind of almost being conditioned against that through that those stereotypes. Yeah, and, and it's really subtle too. So again, like you know, if if you have an interest in this and you walk into a room, you're not going to be like, uh oh, there's 
you know, a Rubik's cube over there. I guess I can't be a scientist, right? Um, but but it's more subtle. So mm-hmm. another example from my personal experience that's not related to STEM. Um, when I was, I guess, a senior in college, I was looking for a part-time job. And my, my boyfriend's sister worked at a big company and she said she could get me a gig. She comes back and she says, well, the only thing that we have available is painting the warehouse. And I kind of pause and I'm thinking like, you don't have any like filing work or secretary kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not that I couldn't physically paint a warehouse. Of course I can mm-hmm. paint, but the gendered stereotypes and my gendered right. expectations were that like, oh, that's, is that a job you meant to offer this guy? Wow. Um, yeah. And I think we're just so, that's so ingrained in how we're raised and in, in sort of the traditional roles that, that males and females get put into, especially in the United States. What does that mean in the context of like, what, what is it about maybe African-American females that, that, that they experience in that same context, right? Oh, absolutely. So that's, that's huge. And, and I'm sure there are a lot of hiring and retention initiatives that different companies have, but in some instances, they don't even, they're, they're not even aware of what's of some of these biases are. So that's, that's really fascinating. No, and to tie it back more explicitly into hiring, mm-hmm. I mean, there is evidence that the kinds of the kind of language that's used in job postings, for instance, affects who applies to that job. Mm. So if you use like, data ninja, yeah, right, that's, yeah. that's that implies something about like masculinity. Mm. And of course, it's meant to be fun. But it does communicate something about like who they expect to be filling that role. Well, I can say from someone who's worked with a bunch of startups over the past few years that I'm really, really glad we're out of the trend of anybody being any kind of a ninja yeah. <laughs> or guru. Uh, if I, if I, there was a period where I saw tons of business cards from startups that are like, I'm a blah 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 guru. I'm like, dude, no, you're not. You're, you're not at all. It's fascinating about how important words are and and how important those kind of stereotypical cues are. You know, in the environment. You know, if I'm somebody who, let's say, is on the organization organizational side and I really want to invest in this like where is that best ROI on on those diversity uh, uh, interventions companies are trying to solve this problem companies are spending a lot of money on this problem but unless you're looking at the data you might be wasting all of that money unfortunately so because there are more companies investing in it we're getting more and more data so we can identify where that ROI is. So one type of program that does seem to be relatively effective is mentorship programs, actually. So what you find is that in a mentorship program, first of all, you're offering it, you can offer it to the entire company. It doesn't have to just be like mentorship for women. It can be Mm. come learn how to advance your skills by meeting this higher up. So first of all, it's open to everybody. So that means one, People, women or minorities who may be at a traditional disadvantage have access to those resources, Mm -hmm. but you're not going to create that at the expense of backlash from majority groups. So if, you know, an organization hears that there's this new program you can learn about to um, to hopefully move up in the career ladder, the the white guy from down the street is not going to get mad about that because he could join it, too. Mm -hmm. Um, So one, that kind of program prevents backlash, Mm -hmm. but two, it puts these people in a situation where they're able to meet people who actually have more advanced skills than they do um, and, and, you know, give them that kind of career advice. So one of the problems with a program that people tend to offer is like specialty groups within an organization. So like women of AIG or Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. So like women of Wells Fargo or something like that. Um, And what they find is that the involvement in those programs does not predict having more women as managers mm-hmm. a few years down the road. So unlike the mentorship program where, where people are getting access to higher up levels, 
the reason they think that these um, affinity groups don't translate to more advancement is that you tend to be meeting people at your same level. Mm-hmm. So if, if we know that there are no women in the C-suite and there's a group for women, like who are they meeting there that's going to help right. advance their careers or give them better advice? Versus in mentorship programs, uh, you do have access to perhaps people with more advanced career knowledge. It seems like there would be a smart investment would be somewhere between the affinity groups like women of X or, you know, Hispanics of X, because I think there is kind of a tried and true model around finding affinity and and frankly, a level of comfort with people Mm -hmm. that are, are in your space and can have more of an open forum to have maybe candid dialogue that they wouldn't in those other groups. But I think there's a combination of finding an affinity group Um, kind of identifying with that, kind of finding your pack in some way, and then having the ability to also have that mentor-mentee relationship as well, which I think those in some instances are mutually exclusive. Ideally, they wouldn't be because there would be representation of women and African-Americans and Hispanics and LGBT and people over 50 and, you know, that, that, that whole end of things. But I, I think they're the, the initiative there, you know, and look, there's got to be some success there or it wouldn't be around to some level. But, you know, outside of kind of the tried and true affinity groups, what do we know that does not work in this environment? Yeah, so it's interesting. And I guess before we move on to that real quick, so we already established that these affinity groups don't really work that well, but that's specifically for advancement. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a word in there earlier, which was comfort. Mm-hmm. So I suspect that these affinity groups are very important for comfort and for belonging. Mm-hmm. So that might not mean that these members of these affinity groups are going on to be promoted, but it might mean that they're going to stay in that position or stay at that company for longer. They're not going to be leaving. So we also know that essentially now we're seeing that diversity programs are creating a lot of backlash. And what the data says on um, when diversity programs create backlash is, one, when it's mandatory – so if you make everybody take diversity training, they're resentful. They don't like it, right? And that can create backlash. And then that undermines its effectiveness. You also see that when you offer the training only to managers and not all employees, you see that that doesn't actually improve um, the advancement of women or minorities. And then anytime you mentioned that it's anytime you mention the law in a diversity program, you're essentially undermining its effectiveness. And so, so we actually can conclude a lot by looking at the data that's on the table. Dig into that last piece. You said if, if you mention the law. So yeah. if you're saying like this is more of an anti-discriminatory exercise than it is an inclusion exercise. Yeah. And kind of focusing on that piece. That's really fascinating. Well, and... and- I'm only speculating on the cause there because I don't I don't think they they parse that out in the data. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could one could speculate that it's because if I'm saying like everybody act this way because it's the law, it implies that like I have mm-hmm. to be told that, right. or maybe that I'm secretly being racist right, and right, I, right. I need the law to protect me from doing that. Um, right. So I think it undermine it might undermine intrinsic motivation. Mm-hmm. That's really fascinating. You know, working in this field. I just feel like I've just scratched the surface of everything that's there and everything that's possible, which I think is why this is such a, a an important and big topic because I know, you know, what it was it 2014 when some of the big numbers came out from, you know, Google and Facebook and LinkedIn and all of the big tech companies in Silicon Valley to talk about how dismal the numbers were. 
And there's just so many different uh, possible paths here that, um, you know, delving into your experience and your background has just really opened up a whole different area for, for me to think about. And so it's appreciated that you have that point of view. And I'm, I really think that's that's fantastic. Circling back on some of the things we were talking about earlier, you know, maybe you could dig in a little bit more into the mentor-mentee or role model relationship that that people have coming into organizations. Oh, yeah. Well, so, I mean, role models are incredibly powerful. And and it's important to know that it's not enough to just have one successful, for instance, woman in Silicon Valley. It's not like, oh, cool. Now it's equal playing. It's an equal playing field mm-hmm. for women. Um, and in fact, there's evidence that the exception proves the rule. So when you look and see only one, that implies that there is something rare there. But what they found is that role models are incredibly powerful, especially for young people who are growing up. So there's this really cool study that just came out about inventors. So who goes on to become an inventor? And, and they measure that by becoming an app, a patent applicant. So who's most likely to file patents later on? And most of it wouldn't surprise you. White people are more likely to file patents. Mm-hmm. If you're the upper 20th percentile of the income distribution, you're mm-hmm. more likely to be an inventor. So those aren't too surprising. Um, but what's interesting is they found that when they look at county by county data, they find that people who grew up in an area with a lot of inventors, regardless of where they ended up living, mm. were more likely to be inventors. So if I'm from Mountain View, I'm more likely going to want to start something in my garage. Yeah. And and what they found is that that not only holds generally, but it also holds for women. So the Honolulu area, for instance, happens to have a lot of female inventors and girls who grow up in Honolulu, even if they then move to Austin, Texas when they're adults, Mm -hmm. end up becoming inventors. Are there a lot of inventors in Honolulu? More likely. More female inventors than than other places. Yeah. Fascinating. Huh. So how about, you know, when we were talking about the um, identity compatibility and and sort of the cues in the environment, you know, could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, one of the papers that I published that's that's really neat, it, it talked specifically about identity compatibility. So we already knew that girls who feel that their STEM identity is incompatible with their gender identity, so they just don't feel like being a girl and being a, in STEM really go together. Mm. We already know that they um, feel less belonging in their academic programs Mm -hmm. and that they are more likely to leave the programs but there was still some confusion about why that might be so we did this amazing study where we we had women in stem majors their freshman we followed them all through their freshman year and their sophomore year of college and we we tracked them week by week we add them report like how they're feeling how their classes are going and we found that it wasn't just feeling like your identities were incompatible But beyond that, it was like having a shifting sense of whether they were compatible. Mm. So from week to week, there were some women who varied a lot. Like some weeks they felt like, yeah, this is fine. And then other weeks, like, no, they don't go together. And and it turned out that those fluctuations in compatibility, that first semester in school, went on to predict a year later a whole bunch of outcomes. So one, their belonging. So how much they felt like they belonged there. And then two, their academic performance but only in STEM classes. So when you're talking about that type of, I guess, fluctuation in, in, that, in that perception of their, their individual identities, how much of this is triggered by, say, um, implicit bias? 
Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, let me talk a little bit more about implicit bias in a second because it's a whole other juicy topic. But we were able to find in that study sort of why are they fluctuating? And we were able to ask them about what was the most significant event that happened this week? Was it good or bad? And tell us about it. And then we coded that data and we were looking only for negative events and academic events. So events related to their performance in these STEM fields. And we found that when basically when do you see these fluctuations and we found that after women had a negative experience related to their academic performance we saw a dip in their compatibility the following week but we only found that when they had a negative experience in school when they had a negative experience in their personal life we did not see that dip Hmm. so it did seem to be related specifically to their performance so women are paying attention to the cues in their environments and it affects them Now, you mentioned implicit bias, super interesting topic, becoming increasingly popular. Um, I think Hillary Clinton even mentioned the term implicit bias in the last series of debates. So I I personally, you know, did a little cheer like, yay, implicit bias, people know about it. (laughs) So, So implicit bias essentially means that even if you don't believe in any of the stereotypes that we hear about, so like, I don't believe that, you know, black people are criminals, like, I don't believe that women are worse at math. Even if you don't believe it, because we're exposed to it in our culture, we are affected by it. And it actually ends up affecting our behavior. So to give you an example, again, not from the stereotyping domain, I grew up in Florida where it was really warm. Then I moved to New York for graduate school where it's really cold. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So come winter, people would, it's also in winter darker, right? So I'd find myself walking around at night in the cold and I'd see people with their head tucked down, a hood over their heads, and their hands in their pockets kind of hunched over. And when they'd be walking towards me, I'd instinctively go like, oh God, a mugger, (laughs) right? And then, (laughs) but guess what? Sure enough, oh God, the next person's a mugger too. The next person too. So like, even though I had never been mugged, um, because I had never been in an environment where people were essentially cold, (laughs) you know, having their heads covered, their hands tucked in their sweatshirts and kind of hunched forward, not showing their face because it's cold. I instinctively perceived that as a threat every time for a while um, because of exposure to that stereotype through culture. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, again, even though so, so to, to bring that back to racism and sexism, knowing about stereotypes affects our ability to evaluate data. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, if we have been exposed to the stereotype that men are better at business than women um, and we're evaluating two candidates for a business role, Without even realizing it, on a subconscious level, we might perceive the man to be more qualified for the position. And you see that even if you're somebody who's trained in looking at data objectively, mm. you still make this mistake. And it's, it's not huge numbers. We see this ending up affecting about 1% to 2% of... Um, they say it's um, 1% to 2% of the variance explained, which mm-hmm. is just like a statistical term. But it does have a real impact. Right. No, it sounds like it. And, and, and I think that even if you're somebody who says, I have really made a conscious decision not to have this attitude about this particular stereotype, that it's somewhere ingrained in there. I guess, you know, so let me ask you this. If you, if, what, are, what are the cognitive impacts of that? So if I'm, if I'm someone who, say, really 
has made a conscious decision not to have those attitudes and to fall in line with what the common stereotypes are. And I and I believe that's not the case. How do I deal with the cognitive effects of that bias? Yeah. So it's interesting, actually, is that the what we know about implicit bias and how it affects cognition is that your exposure to stereotypes automatically affects how you think. Um, your first reaction will be in line with those stereotypes. And it happens on an unconscious level. We have to actually manually override the stereotype to make a conscious choice to enact a different behavior. So basically, we are all prejudiced. It's built into us, baked into us from exposure. And But we can overcome it. We just have to, to take another second and think about it a little mm. bit. I like the idea of manual override. Yeah. That's great. You know, it's it's. I think it's one thing when you're actually consciously in that process and, and kind of thinking through that. Um, but I think it's another thing when you're when – you're, there are lots of people out there, as, as I think we have – talked about in the past before that people that just simply that's not on their radar they might they they might not necessarily hold racist attitudes Mm -hmm. right but but there's also like i don't really see the importance of using that manual override which is really really probably the uh, the majority of people that voted in the last election (laughs) maybe maybe not i don't want to oversimplify things here we're talking about cognitive bias you know how does this play out say in hiring Yeah. So, you know, we already know that stereotypes affect how we perceive novel information. And one of the ways that they they test this in the lab is they'll take the same resume, send it out, and they'll change the name. It could be a woman's name or a man's name, a black sounding name or a white sounding name. Um, And the hiring rates can differ to a quite, quite large degree based on just that simple change. Exact same applicant, exact same background. Um, so people are, are wising up to that, and they're a little bit more on guard for that. But something that they aren't looking out for always is we, we see this second-order effect of, um, of status and evaluating information. So what do I mean by that? When you're hiring, there's almost never the perfect candidate. They're, they either have to relocate or like, well, they've got experience, but it's in kind of an adjacent domain or, well, this guy is a lot more educated, but this person's got a lot more experience in the same domain. <clears throat> and what ends up happening is that gendered stereotypes and stereotypes about race also affect our judging criteria. So essentially, if you have a, a woman and a man going up for the same role and the man's got a little bit more experience, but sh- the woman's got a little bit more education... There's a tendency to go like, well, I think experience matters more, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so essentially, like whatever the the higher status person has, we we kind of shift our attitudes to think like, oh, well, probably that matters more in this case. Mm. So, getting back to what hiring managers can do to pr- to reduce bias and improve diversity, one thing they can do is to create very clear hiring guidelines before they actually look at any resumes. So Mm. how much do we care about experience? How much do we care about education? How much are we willing to have someone relocate? How much are we willing to work on flex time? Mm. And by having those criteria ahead of time, you're more likely to give diverse candidates a fair shake. That's really, really fascinating because I have always thought about sort of the context in which I know that I've heard some organizations are taking the name and the gender off of resumes, you know, which that's a great first step. 
But what would what would be something? I mean, I think that criteria, defining that criteria, just seems like it. Would you do that for the position? Would you do that for all positions? Or because that just seems like an extra level, a whole extra level of work. Oh yeah, no, and I mean the reality is it's easier to have bias. <laughs> the reality is it's like it's easier to not fix these things. Um, but so to answer your question specifically, yeah, the idea is that you'd look at it, that individual role, like what do we really need to have here? And what's sort of nice to have or, or fluff? So I'm an organization and I've done my homework and I've put all of these things in place. Um, we've taken the names off the resumes. We have come up with very specific criteria for hiring that will allow us to give the broadest consideration to the most diverse group of people you know what else can an organization do to to increase diversity in in their hiring practices yeah um so we talked a little bit earlier about it's not just about attracting the right talent but it's about keeping the right talent um so one thing that can help with both is the way you talk about talent in an organization do you talk about finding geniuses and looking for top talent because traditionally what people think when they hear that is genius tends to be a white man or an Asian man, right? So instead of using language that talks about finding geniuses or or natural born leaders or natural talent, uh, one thing companies can do is say that they're looking to grow talent or develop talent. And that's a simple fix that any hiring manager can do. Well, it does seem that there's more effort to put in there, but I agree. I, I think that if a hiring manager can take those measures, can develop talent from the ground up and develop talent internally, um, there is more of an opportunity for people from diverse backgrounds to actually have that pathway to senior leadership roles without a shadow of a doubt. Well, thank you so much, uh, Shana. I really, really appreciate this. And I really am really excited to have you on board. Um, would you like to add anything before we depart? Yeah, one thing I'd like to add is that maybe this sounds complicated, but in the end, it's simple. If, if companies want to improve the diversity of their organizations, which, by the way, does affect their bottom line, there's a lot that they can do when you have the right knowledge. That is a great, great way to wrap this up. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody listening to this podcast. And we will see you soon. Enjoy today's episode? Subscribe to the UX of Diversity podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you podcast.